Well, every year on the Sunday before Christmas, I, along with probably every other pastor in, in the world, considers how we might preach, how I might preach on the subject of Christmas, the subject of the incarnation of God. And I want to confess that there's, there's so many options, there's so many possibilities that feel a little bit like Spurgeon who says when he, he would decide what he was going to preach on for Sunday on Saturday night after studying all week. And he said, I would come to my Bible on Saturday night and every verse would be raising its hand saying, pick me, Mr. Spurgeon, pick me. And there's so many Christmas narratives and Christmas uh, theological themes that we could draw on that it does kind of stagger the imagination. Except a few weeks ago, just in my reading of Hebrews, I came across a familiar passage that, that really pulled me in. And I thought that's exactly what I was studying and share and preach on on the Sunday before Christmas. We've often talked about the fact that if you think about the Easter story without Christmas theology, you have a really just a sad story of a man dying a very sad death. On the other side, if you have the Christmas story without the Easter theology, you have a sentimental story of a little baby who didn't have a place to be born. We have to look at the cross from the manger. And when we look at the cross, we have to remember the one who was in the manger. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Because I think probably as much as or more than any other passage I'm aware of in the Bible, this 18-verse paragraph pulls Christmas and Easter theology, Christmas and Easter narratives, Christmas and Easter facts together in one simple passage. Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read the first 18 verses and let me give you a heads up. We're going to scan over these 18 verses very fast in an exposition. It's going to be more of an expository reading than really drilling down into all that's here. If we were to drill it down into all that's here, we would be here a long, long time. The writer to the Hebrews says, verse 1, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, the substance of things, can never by some, the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make complete or make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, once having been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world... He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book as it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. He said then, behold, I have come to do your will. 
He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying this, this covenant, this is the new covenant, this covenant that I make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write or rewrite them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering or sacrifice for sins. My favorite Christmas hymn, my favorite Christmas carol, I'll confess, is Charles Wesley's Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which was written in 1739. And I know you've read this, I know you sing this, I know you know this, but have you stopped to really consider how much theology Wesley packed and shoehorned into these simple verses. Listen to them not melodically, but listen to them theologically. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all the nations, all ye nations rise Join the triumph of the skies from earth to heaven and back. With the angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting. Now we're reaching back before the world began. The everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men, to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Heaven-born? Heaven-born? We just spoke of being born in Bethlehem. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness, light, and life to all he brings. Risen, resurrected, with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth and born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. 
Wesley reaches back in this hymn to eternity past, to present, to eternity future. He also reaches into heaven and weds that with the reality here on earth. We've talked about this a little bit before. In fact, I remember when we were studying Revelation 4, discussing this. But thinking of eternity, is, is, it just kind of melts your mind. But thinking of eternity from now forward is almost fathomable. In other words, if we think we're, we're never going to end, I'm okay with that. This is, it doesn't stop. I, I, can, I have a category. There's a shelf in my mind to put that thought, that it will never end. Think about the fact that God never began. Ever. Think as far back as you can, and you haven't even touched a nanosecond of infinity backwards. Arthur Pink writes this. There was a time, if time it could be called, when God, in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested, no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to sing his praises, no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God. And that... Not for a day and not for a year or even an age, but from everlasting. He goes on. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also had been, would have been called into existence from all eternity. The creating of them when he did added nothing to God, essentially. It's incredible. He never began. The Godhead, one and three, three and one, existed by himself in an eternity, for an eternity, going backwards. Along with that reality was the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. Which is an odd thing to say. He was born in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. And yet he was heaven born, yet he was there before the foundation of the world. How does all that work? Quick tour through John. Just a few verses. This was something that Jesus talked often of, and I almost sense, this is my sanctified imagination, I almost sense that he perhaps had a wry smile when he said some of these things. Remember how John begins his, his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, which is Jesus in verse 14, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He was the creator. I love the little narrative where Jesus is confronting the Jews about their relationship to Abraham and how Abraham is the be-all, end-all, captain of all that they thought theologically. And he says to them, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. Really bad grammar. Very good theology. Before Abraham was, I am. Who can reach back thousands of years and say, I was before that? Jesus could. And then probably the place where this is clearest in my own mind is when he prays in John 17, I, you know, the high priestly prayer. And you can imagine, uh, the tradition tells us that they would pray typically with their arms, palms up, raised to the heaven, looking into the heavens. Whether they, were, we, they bowed their heads or, or not, we don't have a record of that. But let's just say for supposition that they might have in this moment, or even if they were looking up, when Jesus said this in his prayer out loud, they must have opened their eyes and looked around or looked down and looked at each other. Jesus prays. Think about this. Think about someone praying this in your presence. Now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You've got the reality. What is, what's the picture to you? That's the illustration here. It's only a picture. It's only a shadow of the good things to come, which is the gospel, which is the coming of Christ. That's what he's going to talk about beginning in verse 5. Why is it imperfect? Well, look as he keeps going. And you'll see over and over in this passage, there's year by year, time after time, day after day, it's intended to have this rhythmic, ongoing, never-ending habit. They can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make complete, finish up, make perfect, those who draw near. If you draw near to God through the sacrificial system, you're, that was great, but you're going to have to come back next year. There's never a sacrifice that ends at all. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if, if it finally made you what you needed to be, would you have to come back the next year? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. Would they? I mean, he's making a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, argument. Look, if, if you did it once and it worked, it wiped out all your sins, it took them away, then you wouldn't need to come back. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And then here's this great theological pillar that you all know. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Hebrew word for atonement, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 17, to make atonement for sin, that Hebrew word means to cover. Just It means to cover. This is something completely different. This is not covering them. Look at what verse 4 says. It talks about taking them away. Very different th- terminology, which we'll come back to in a moment. The problem was the sacrificial system was imperfect. You had to do it over and over and over and never actually satisfy God in a lasting, permanent way. So now we come to this other view of what we need to understand at Christmas. The second theological view, the solution of incarnation. There's this problem. This problem of The sacrificial system having to be done over and over again and again. Here's the solution. Incarnation. In order to make the point here, the writer goes back and does what any good preacher does. He uses scripture. He goes back to Psalm 40, verses 6 to 7. Therefore, 
<laughs> when he comes into the world. That should remind you of Hebrews 1.6. And when again he brings the firstborn into the world, meaning he was outside of the world and he came into the world. You want a Christmas devotional text? How about that little phrase in verse 5? When he comes into the world. Is that amazing? He says, now we're talking about Christ. We're talking about him saying something. And now he quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 and 7. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. The sacrificial system, you don't want that to be a perpetually ongoing system. But a body, a human body, you have prepared for me. Now, before we talk about the wonder of this, we have to wrestle with a textual problem. Let me just show you something. Would you turn back to Psalm 40 for a second? He's quoting Psalm 40. And he says, a body you have prepared for me. You understand what this is talking about. The pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity coming as human flesh. And he's quoting Psalm 40. And you would think that if the Holy Spirit who penned this through this writer quoted the Old Testament, he would get it right, wouldn't you? But look at this. Psalm 40. Sacrifice and a meal offering. Verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears... You've opened. Burn offering and sin offering you've not required. Behold, I come and the scroll of the book is written of me. I delight to do your will. Well, there's nothing about a body in here. Notice that? So how can the Holy Spirit quote the Holy Spirit and get it wrong? Unless he didn't get it wrong. Remember, this is written in Hebrew, the, the uh, Older Testament. In the day of Jesus, there was a Greek translation. That was what the New Testament was written, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we call the LXX or the Septuagint, maybe you've heard that before, the Septuagint says, a body you've prepared for me. How can it say that? How can this writer pick it up and say, this is what that says, and this is what that means? Well, what we have to do is understand these, that there's an idiom here. Literally, when it says, you've opened my ears, that's kind of a bad Hebrew translation. Literally, you've dug out my ears in my skull. That's what it means. You've put holes in my head. What's the purpose clause? So that I can hear you and do your will. In other words, what God has done is prepared possibility for obedience in that psalm. And it became an idiom. You've opened my ears. You've prepared a body for me. You've, you've fixed my body so that I can obey you. And that got translated in the idiom, in the translation, over into the Greek uh, uh, Old Testament, the Greek uh, version of that psalm. And you say, well, you know, maybe I would change that except for the fact that Jesus quoted the Septuagint. And except for the fact that the writer here quotes it exactly as the Septuagint says, meaning that the Holy Spirit inspired that translation in that moment. 
we have to talk about those things because some of you are going to be good students and go back in your Bible and say, hang on, that's not what that psalm says. It's exactly what that psalm says through translation that the Holy Spirit codified here in Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus does the same thing and quotes the Greek translation several times that have slight nuances, no difference in meaning, just expansion on the meaning. But what does that mean? You prepared a body for me. Here's what's going on. We're eavesdropping. A few weeks ago, we all saw uh, the World Series in which the Kansas City Royals won, if you haven't been around. And I was watching those games, and I found myself doing something every single time that the catcher would go out to the pitcher if they wanted to to, uh, have some communication, they wanted to change a sign, a signal, and they would talk. What would they do every time? You're all doing it. They would take their, their glove and put it over their, uh, over their mouth so that the television couldn't pick up what they were saying and someone in the booth see that, relay that down to their du- the opposition's dugout. We couldn't hear, we couldn't eavesdrop, but I found myself going, what are they, what are they saying in there? This is interesting. There's no glove. We are hearing before the world began the second person of the Trinity talking to the first person of the Trinity, the Son speaking to the Father, and he says, these sacrifices over and over don't take away sin. They cover, but they don't take them away. A body, a human body, you have prepared for me. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. If you want to understand what he means even more specifically, turn back to Hebrews 2. Verse 14. Here we get the fuller explanation. Why did this have to happen? Why did this go this way? Why did he need to come in a body? When I was in junior high, I went to a, a Christmas camp one time, and the name of the Christmas camp was God in a Bod. And I always thought, that might be a little irreverent, but it's actually true. God in a body. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children, since people share in flesh and blood, we have flesh that perishes, we have blood, which means we can die. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same, that through death, now we have it, he was given a body like ours so he could die like us, that he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he doesn't give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to, here it is, Make propitiation, sacrifice for the sins of the people. He took on a body so that he could die. He became the sacrifice. And now he starts talking about the sacrifice and the purpose of it. Then I said, behold, it's kind of interesting here how it all weaves together because you have the writer of the Hebrews quoting the Old Testament, 
quoting Jesus before the foundation of the world. So in this, you have, when Jesus said this, he was quoting himself. If there's one author, it's just wonderful circular reasoning. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've not taken any pleasure. That's exactly what, what Psalm uh, 40 says. Because they're perpetual, they're over and over and over. They, they keep happening. Then I said, behold, I have come. And he says, he quotes a little, uh, uh, that little parenthetical phrase in Psalm 40. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Jesus says that's of me. To do your will, O God. To do God's will. Where does this come to fruition? He did the will of God all through his life, except the most specific utterance of that is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Lord, please let this, let this cup pass from me, and yet not my will, but yours. He took on a body to die. That's doing the will of God. Do you see the connection? After saying above, now he, like a good expositor, he goes back and exposits the text he just quoted. Sacrifices and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. That's the point he's making. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. He's doing away with the old covenant, establishing the new covenant, which is going to be in our next point. And lest you're confused about whether he's really talking about what we think he's talking about, verse 10 nails it. By this will, the will of the Lord Jesus who did his, the will of the Father and not his own will, dying as a sacrifice for us, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. See the connection? If you write in your Bible, you can circle body of Jesus Christ, a body you've prepared for me. It's the same body once for all. Now, verse 10 is, is watershed theological, the theological uh, data. Look at what he's saying here. We've all been sanctified. Now, let me give you a little insight into how the writer of the Hebrews especially uses this term sanctified. Usually, we look at salvation as you're justified, you're sanctified, you're glorified, right? Sanctified means, all the word means is set apart. Sometimes the writers of the New Testament, Paul and the writer here, use the term sanctified to actually talk about justification, the setting aside. I believe that's what's happening here. By this you have been sanctified, set aside, justified, made whole, made perfect through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The point, though, here is the once for all. We already heard day after day, year after year, time after time, Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Do you see in that one little point, those, one, those just few verses where Christmas and Easter just come together? Just, how can you talk about one without the other? Which leads us to this third view of Christmas in this passage. The wonder of salvation. The wonder of salvation. Every priest, verse 11, stands daily. Here all this time, time after time, day after day, year after year. Here he's daily. Stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. They atone. They covered for them, but they didn't take them away. 
Let's go back and wed that with verse 10. Excuse me, with verse um, uh, 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to ever take away sin. Here, they, they can never take away sin. Well, were they forgiven? If blood from bulls and goats can't pay for sin, and yet God said, do this and I'll forgive your sin, how does that work? Somehow, in a mysterious divine accounting, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was applied to the sacrificial system of those who gave it in sincerity by faith. I don't know. I can't go any further than that. Any, that's what Hebrews 10 affirms. I can't go any further than that. Because the Old Testament, I mean, when those people gave their, their, their sacrifices of blood from bulls and goats in the Old Testament, they did that to make atonement for their sin. And God says, okay, I'll forgive you. But now we find out that that didn't forgive them. The only way sin can be truly taken away, as we're going to see, is to the death of Christ. How he retrofitted that is beyond my pay grade to figure out. These sacrifices in the Old Testament can never take away sin. And then there's verse 12. But he. Anytime you see but he, but God, circle, highlight, whatever you, that is massive. That's saying something in the world, but God is different than that. But he... Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, and then that sign of a Jewish rabbi who'd finished his work, sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And he goes back and theologizes it again. For by one offering... Jesus, he has completed, perfected for all time those who are set aside, sanctified, justified, saved by one offering. Verse 15 begins a section where in verse 16, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and 32, he's going to go back and quote. But don't miss what's going on in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. How does the Holy Spirit testify to us? This whole passage tells us by Scripture. The Holy Spirit informs the heart and the soul of a believer about Christmas and Easter and their meaning. I just, I, I got to confess, I weary of this you know, people give gifts. That's the true meaning of Christmas, as if Christmas has to have some true meaning for it to, to happen. There, there is true meaning, but the true meaning of Christmas is the meaning of Easter. It's the babe who grew up to die. How do we know that? The Holy Spirit testifies to us. How does he testify to us? We read these verses and we say, wow, what a God. The world cannot understand what we commonly call the true meaning of Christmas. It's not giving gifts rather than receiving. It's worshiping Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In verse 16, he quotes the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart. 
And on their mind I will write or rewrite them. He moves from the head to the heart, in other, in other words. And he says, all their sins and their lawless deeds, I, I won't remember them. I will remember them no more. And then the capstone of this whole passage is verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any sacrifice or offering for sin. It's done. The sacrificial system is over for those who, who understand Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Do you see what this writer is doing? To talk about Christ's birth without a view to his death is not good theology. But to consider Christ's death without knowing who he was at his birth is also insufficient, incomplete theology. What do you see when you sing and say and talk about the baby in the manger? Do you, are you really at, at this place where you can say, veiled in flesh, veiled in Jesus, I see the Godhead. I understand this is no mere man, and yet he is a man. Flesh and blood just like me. I think the right way to come to the Christmas season, to this week, to Friday when we celebrate Christmas, is just to stop and just say, wow. It's, it's not to figure it all out. It's to be amazed by the incarnation of God. Jesus spoke to the Father before there was even space or planets and said, a body, you've prepared a body for me because the Lamb of God was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. It's all about the gospel, not a sentimental story that we sing songs about. I love the story, love the songs, but let's go beyond that in giving him the full worship that our hearts can muster. Father, please open our eyes to see fresh and wonderful truths about the incarnation. Please use this passage to open our eyes to see that you sent your son from heaven to come into this world. So even though as Hebrews 10 will tell us at the end of this passage, you came in a veil that was human flesh. Cause us to see that you are God, Jesus. I'm going to close this in a minute. Uh, if you want to talk to anyone about your heart, about what it means to submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, please don't leave without speaking to me or someone who can shepherd you and thinking that through. Don't miss the cross for the cradle. And don't miss the cradle for the cross. Father, make this week one that's full of worship. We pray especially for tonight as friends and relatives, unbelievers will come and hear the gospel in song and in word. Plant seeds that will bloom into full faith for your glory and the good of those who believe. In Jesus' name, amen.